Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Joan, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, uh, welcome. I've been, I've been warned not to give any prognostications about the restoration or the, the remodels, but uh, I can say with no lack of certainty that the bathrooms work, okay? Um, they don't have lights in them, which is why you're not using them this morning. I'll put about 70% chance for next week that we'll be able to go to the bathroom inside. Uh, I don't know if some of you are going to the bathroom outside. What I meant to say is without walking around. So uh, we are right at the end of it. Thank you guys again so much for your patience. Also, uh, we put a lot of thought into our, into our bulletins here, so don't just throw them away. Take a look at them. There's um, exciting, hopefully some helpful stuff coming up. Uh, one thing, given that it's Orphan Sunday, uh, that I, I just want to bring our attention to, uh, we, uh, the pastors, staff, a lot of our deacons at Sojourn feel the simultaneous burden uh, to follow the scriptures and care for widows, care for orphans, while at the same time wrestling with, we're not sure how to do that very well. Uh, and so we're, we're trying in some ways, and we know that we need to put more effort into it. So uh, if you're somebody who needs some help, uh, whether you're interested in adopting or foster care, or you're feeling the weight of that, uh, for, for a lot of people, a day like today can be a reminder of the children they, they've led into their home through the foster care system that they've loved, poured their hearts into, and had to say goodbye to them as they go back. And, and that's a that's a burden not many people have experience with or can handle, uh, certainly not alone. So wherever you are on the spectrum, if, if you want to know what we're doing or if you've got ideas of how we could be doing more, uh, fill out a Connect card. It's in the seat back in front of you. You can just write down on the back um, that you want to help out or that you need help because we, we believe this is the call of God on the Scriptures, whether it's to adopt yourself or to be a foster parent yourself or if it's to help those in our community that are doing so. Uh, so fill that out and you can drop it off in this little box up here on your way out. Thanks. Also, uh, today is kind of a crescendo of sorts in our a series that we're working through our family history as the church, the, the five solas or the five onlys. And uh, today we're talking about sola dea gloria. This is one of my favorite ones to say. It's conjugated a little differently, which we can explain grammatically if you wanna know why. It ends in an I, not in an A. Uh, but it means to the glory of God alone. And so remember, this is, these are statements around how are we reunited with God or what theologians will call our justification. And so we've said that we are reunited with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And glory is one of these huge, uh, super familiar, but totally abstract concepts because we talk about, uh, I don't know, the glory of a sunset and the glory of that putt-putt shot and the glory of God. And it's just kind of, what, what does this mean? Uh, so to talk about it a little bit, I wanna give us some history on two people that were hugely influential in my life that I'm also sure uh, you guys have never heard of. Uh, the first one is one of my college professors. My parents are here, so college wasn't a total waste for me. Uh, this man named Jose Bowen. Here's Jose, handsome man, brilliant, couple PhDs. He runs a college now, uh, but he was a music professor my freshman year at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And real quick, just so I can get some bitterness out of the way, Miami University was a college before Florida was a state. So all you people going around saying, oh, Miami of Ohio, I say, no, Miami, Miami. We're the real Miami, the first Miami. It was college before Florida was even a state. So I don't care where you hurricane people. So Miami University, Jose Bowen. 
Uh, I enrolled in his history of jazz class, uh, which was known as a blow-off class. Um, the blow-off class, if you haven't been to college or it was a long time ago for you, that's the class that's the easy A, right? You go there, it doesn't require much effort. Both of these were like my, my requirements for college classes, right? Sometimes you can go and doesn't require much effort. Uh, so I went thinking, expecting the easy A. Now the first class, he's talking about things related to the history of jazz. He's talking about the city of New Orleans and how French culture mixes with Creole culture and who invented the trumpet and why street musicians started playing and you know, like everyone is just like, Lord help me, this is going to be a long semester. Uh, in retrospect, I think he was setting us up. Uh, so he bores everyone to death. I'm gonna, I'm gonna need some help for this part here. I'm gonna need our resident music savant, Ryan Marsh, to come on stage. Ryan, where you at? Ryan, you here? he's still here, thank God. This would've been real uncomfortable if you'd forgotten. Don't applause. We're Christians here, we don't puff each other up, right? God forbid we be encouraging. Uh, so Jose bores us into death. He was talking about all these different genres of jazz and explaining the differences. And then in this real dramatic moment, Jose, in his suit, looks at the class of bored freshmen and he says, this, ladies and gentlemen, is jazz. And then he shouts out into the lecture hall, Bossa Nova! He says, what about bop? Give me some bop. Want something new? Something fresh? Give me that progressive jazz. Give me some progressive jazz. Feel a little different. How about the swing? You got some swing? Yeah, yeah. My personal favorite's coming up next. Ragtime? Ryan Marsh, ladies and gentlemen. That's how you do it. That's, your mama raised you right. Mama raised him right. I came to see Professor Bowen more like this. He's a, this dude was a maniac, okay? Uh, he, he intentionally bored us to show us that learning about jazz was brutal and it was boring, but hearing it, and experiencing it changed us. This lunatic would assign records for homework. We would be so excited to get homework in class because we didn't know who we were gonna go have to listen to. We'd go to the music library afterwards and go rent records, and me and my buddy Doug would sit up late into the night listening to all kinds of crazy stuff. He would explain what the difference between bop jazz and progressive jazz and hard bop jazz and cool jazz and yada, 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 but then he would give us something to listen to. And he taught me and a couple of my buddies lessons that we still carry today. And, and one of the big ones is this. Experience always trumps information. You can know about jazz and it's, it's interesting and it's good, but it doesn't come anywhere close to experiencing what it is. And I imagine there's at least one of those styles that did something in you. Or you're like, ooh, I could hear more of that. I could, I could stand to listen to more of that. But it wouldn't have compared. It's, it's nothing like if I'd stood here and just lectured you guys about all the differences rather than hearing it and experiencing it. Experience 
always trumps information. So influence number one, Jose Bowen. Influence number two, this is my girl right here, Ruth Graves. Is it Graves Wakefield? Ruth Graves Wakefield. Ruth Wakefield. There she is. She was a nutritionist, dietitian, who in the 1930s decided to open up a bed and breakfast with her husband on the East Coast. Giving her history and training with food, she handled all the cooking for her bed and breakfast. So one day, she was working on this special batch of cookies for all the guests after dinner, and she realized that she was missing a crucial ingredient. Uh, she had run out of her baker's chocolate, and she didn't know what to do. So she looks around in the kitchen and sees that she has a bar of Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate. Uh, if you're a baker or you cook, you'll understand there's, there's some pretty big differences between baker's chocolate and semi-sweet chocolate. But it was either take the risk on semi-sweet chocolate and have cookies or have no cookies. So she chopped up the semi-sweet chocolate and put it in the dough, put it in the oven. And one of the big differences between baker's chocolate and semi-sweet chocolate is the melting temperature. So... Ruth pulls out these cookies that she's made, and instead of the chocolate melting and integrating out throughout the cookie, there's actual chunks of chocolate in the cookie. And what she found out was that it was amazing. <laughs> right? Total serendipitous intervention of God to his people. The chocolate chip cookie was born. Uh, the chocolate chip cookie is evidence of God's glory. And, and for you people who eat oatmeal raisin cookies, it's evidence of sin's power to pervert and twist something good and make it awful. Yes. Yes. Finally know how to get an amen here. Her bed and breakfast uh, that began in the 30s was called the Toll House Inn. And this man named Andrew Nestle heard about this magic accident, and he went and tried it. He was so enamored that he gave Ruth a lifetime supply of Nestle semi-sweet chocolate, and he put her recipe on the back of all of these chocolate bars. And now you may have heard of the recipe called Toll House Cookies. That's interesting, right? It's a little bit interesting? A little bit interesting. Uh, who knew that there was such wonderful history behind the chocolate chip cookie? Who knew about Ruth Wakefield? Uh, I laughed when I read about this. It's fun to get paid to search history of the chocolate chip cookie, uh, which is how I found all this information. But now let me ask you, as intriguing, as interesting, and maybe exciting for you as that is, would you rather hear me go on and on about all the different competing chocolate chip recipes and the history of it, or would you rather have like grandma show up to your house after church with a box of freshly baked cookies, right? As interesting as that is, would you rather know about it or would you rather eat a chocolate chip cookie? Thank you. One honest person at church this morning. So as it turns out, our church doesn't just have incredible musicians like Ryan Marsh. Uh, we also have incredible bakers. Like, is Aberlin here? Aberlin Sweetland? Are you here? I'm going to embarrass the heck out of you. Where are the ushers? I'm going to need some ushers help. Aberlin baked 400 chocolate chip cookies for you guys this morning. And boy, are y'all in for a treat. Ooh-wee, girl. Operation Chip Wagon is a go. Yeah, go on, pass them out. Some, we're used to passing out baskets where you got to put something in. Now we're going to give you a basket where you get to take something out. Okay? Now, for you people that are animals and just devour this real, like, 
Cook, oh, I forgot about this in the first service. There, oh, he put it up for me, yeah. Cookie Monster. I forgot about that in the first service. Don't Cookie Monster this thing, okay? I want you to smell the cookie. I want you to feel the texture of it. I want you to take a bite and feel how the dough and the chocolate dances around in your mouth and those flavors work together. Don't ask Aberlin for the recipe because it's none of your business. Information can excite and instruct, but experience transforms. Think about this. Would you rather me say more and more about the history of Ruth Graves or the wonderful world of chocolate chip cookies, or would you rather eat another cookie, right? Experience, I think we'll have some left over, so after communion, we'll have cookie lines in the back, I guess. Um, As we get to the end of the book of Romans, not totally to the end, but pretty close to it, uh, Paul, who wrote this, has spent 11 chapters instructing us. He's laying out theology, and uh, one of the I wish I could read Greek better, which is what Paul wrote, wrote in, because in some ways his grammar is terrible, but you can feel how excited he gets because he'll have these long run-on sentences with no periods and he'll just be going and going and going and get, you can feel how excited he's getting. And here towards the end of chapter 11, he just gets wrapped up and he becomes like a, a baker who, who stops baking to taste the batter. Uh, He stops instructing and starts enjoying what he's talking about. These verses are a song that he's written. Uh, So he's going through a history lesson, and then he's going through a theology lesson, and then he just can't take it anymore, and he starts singing. What he's trying to show us is that knowing the glory of God in our minds is not enough. It's not God's intentions for us to just know this and be able to articulate it. Being reunited with God, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, means that God has saved us for the purpose of enjoying, experiencing him, and sharing that taste with others. So look at how Paul starts his song. He says, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. When we try to consider the glory of God or just God himself, at some point we'll fall short. And and most of us think about this morally, right? We'll never be as perfect, as holy as God. And, And that's true. But what Paul is talking about here is intellectually we'll fall short. God's source of insight and knowledge are too great, too vast, too rich. We'll we'll never be able to know all there is to know. We will have an eternity with God and we'll never stop learning new things or experiencing new depths of who he is. And Paul isn't fighting his limitations here. You know, he's not crying out, oh, if I were only smarter. Oh, if I were only more like Sheila, who was so smart. He's not bucking up against his limitations. He's basking in them. He's, He's soaking in the bigness of God. And and this transforms his thought process as he's considering this and seeing the hugeness of God. uh, He begins enjoying the realization that he's inadequate. He he begins finding comfort and, and reassurance in his own smallness. So he says, who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? Who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? 
He's just covering kind of the, the spectrum of human experience here. He's, he's caught a glimpse of what the glory of God is. It's, it's his uh, unlimited stores of greatness. Uh, think about any good quality. Uh, and God has that in spades. He, he can never run out of those things. And, and Paul isn't saying these statements out of a place of self-deprecation. You notice there's exclamation points after all of these? He's excited about it and enthusiastic about it. Seeing the greatness of God, the endless beauty and excellence of God, experiencing it, uh, doesn't destroy Paul's self-esteem. It actually secures it. He, he finds incredible comfort and confidence and even joy in knowing how small he is in light of how amazing and beautiful and wonderful God is. He can rest in his own limitations and inadequacy. And then he puts this wonderful bow on it this way. He says, everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. I really think we need more songs like this. Um, do you realize what Paul is, is realizing here? What he's seeing? As, you know, he's plumbed the depths of God's work throughout history and God's character. It's brought him close to God and he's gotten, he's received this experience of God's presence as he's meditated on him and thought about him and reflected on him. And it's provided Paul with answers to what are arguably life's biggest questions. So one, one question that, that this song answers. Where did all of this come from? It's a question everybody's thinking about, and whether you're religious or you're a total atheist, secular person, uh, both answers require copious amounts of faith. If you're visiting and you disagree with what I'm saying, like I really hope that someone here is that way and you're here with questions and maybe it's one of these questions that brought you. Uh, in, my, in my mind, it doesn't take a small amount of faith to say there once was nothing. Nothing ever existed. And then in a strange moment, uh, this little tiny infinitesimally small ball appeared with all the matter in the known universe stuffed into it. And then it exploded and now we have the universe. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. Uh, one, one guy uh, I read sometimes described that process leading to this universe. It'd be similar to strapping a 747 with dynamite, lighting the dynamite, it explodes, and all the pieces land as a fully assembled 747. Like, the odds are astronomical. Where did all of this come from? a less difficult example to think through. If you eat chocolate chip cookies long enough, and if you eat them slow enough, that's my struggle, eating them slowly and enjoying them, you'll start to wonder things like, who came up with this? Uh, and it may not be a spiritual question. Like, who ground up a plant and said, oh, look at this flower? Like, oh, you are flower, right? I've got flower here. And then they're like crazy uncles, like, hey, let's take a chicken baby and put it in that, right? <laughs> Like an egg? Isn't that what kind of a chicken baby is? An egg? Right? Isn't that weird that we eat those? Let's take that chicken baby and put it in the flour. And then somebody else is like, put just a little bit of water in it and take some of the milk from that cow and put it in there too. And then the kid was like, heat it up, see what happens. And then you've got cookie dough. Like, right? Like, that's weird. Who came up with that? 
Uh, and if you think about those things long enough, you'll have even bigger questions like, who made a plant that could do that and that could be turned into chocolate? And that, uh, who made a chicken? And, and who made a cow? And who made a human brain that could figure all that stuff out? So Paul has been crystal clear here. Where does everything come from? Everything was God's idea. Everything comes from God. The second question this answers, why does all of this exist? This is the big dilemma for people who don't believe in God. Um, See, regardless of what you believe, we kind of hit the science thing. Let's talk about something a little more personal. Regardless of what you believe, all of us get a taste of goodness in our life. Um, Whether it's great food or a sunset. You ever notice how everyone gets religious when a baby's born? This new life comes in and all of a sudden people want to pray. When, when you experience goodness, something is stirred in the soul. Something cries out for meaning. And so when we're, we're faced with the culture's popular notion that life is fundamentally meaningless, when we hear that or someone tells that to us, don't you see when, how something rises up in your soul and says, no, that, that's not true. My pain is not meaningless. This joy is not meaningless. This sunset is not meaningless. Our soul recognizes that somewhere deep inside of us, we are made for God. Why does everything exist? It exists for God. Either it exists so that we can experience him or as an aid to experience him. All of life is a gift from God, sustained by God for the purpose of enjoying God. That's what it means to live for the glory of God alone. And far too many Christians are simply content to know this or to regurgitate a theological definition of the glory of God or to quote a bunch of verses that talk about the glory of God. And hear me now, this is good and this is important. Just like understanding the history of jazz or the history of the chocolate chip cookie is good and important. But when we outsource our experience of the glory of God to a book or a sermon, when when it remains only a concept and not a tangible reality, it's like reading books about cookies and never taking a bite. Some of you, you you've outsourced your relationship with Jesus to me. And what does that mean? means you don't read your Bible, you don't pray, you're not doing anything to kind of fuel your Christian life, but you come here on Sunday hoping to borrow or trusting that I'm doing that and I will give you an injection of that to sustain you for the week. Maybe you don't like the preaching, but you really like the music and you're trusting Justin and his musicians to get you emotionally riled up and that will sustain you for another week. Or maybe you get worn out and you're like, I just need to listen to a Matt Chandler sermon or I just need to listen to a John Piper sermon and and you're trusting other places and other things to give you this feeling of closeness with God. You've outsourced your relationship with Jesus to someone that you perceive to be holier or better or, or whatever. And like, if you find yourself perpetually bitter or angry, or if you're someone who jumps from church to church and you're like, every church in Southern Indiana has a problem. I'm just gonna guess that every church in Southern Indiana isn't filled with like heretical, false teaching apostates right? Like not every church in Southern Indiana is terrible. What's the common denominator in all these awful church experiences you've had? 
What's the only thing that's been the same in every one of these churches you didn't like? It's been you. And maybe you just got a bad run of really bad churches. Or maybe you've been outsourcing your relationship with God to somebody else. A mature Christian is easily edified, is easily encouraged because they're rooted in the real tangible presence of God. One author, when we do this outsourcing, when we settle for someone else's experience, when we read about cookies instead of eating them, he describes what happens this way. We become unconvicted and unpersuasive travel agents handing out brochures to places we've never visited. What's that mean? It means people see right through you when you talk about this peace God gives you and yet you can't sleep at night. When you talk about how secure you are in the presence of God and you're so anxious about your bills. You talk about these promises of God, but they remain distant and and forward. You talk about the love of Jesus and you walk around cold and angry. People see through that. You're a travel agent handing out brochures to a place that you've never been. So my hope this morning was, was rather than giving you guys a long lecture on what the glory of God is, it's his infinite beauty made public to us. It's the unending stores of his greatness. Now go spend the rest of your life learning what that means. Instead of lecturing you on this, I want to leave you real quick with just some, what I hope are simple handholds for how you can go away from being a travel agent and start being a tourist. You you can start being somebody that's actually experiencing the goodness and the glory of God. First, follow the goodness in your life. Seeing the goodness in your life will be a lot easier for some of you than others. I grant you that. Um, But I'm convinced that there is goodness in all of our lives. Uh, The goodness, the beauty, the love of God is present It might be harder to find than others. Follow whatever that is to its source. You can can do this with nearly anything, I think. Uh, So I wanted to explain this by trying to use an example that is not spiritual, uh, that's not in the Bible, that most of us would not look at and say, that's a Christian activity. Um, (laughs) Because I might get in trouble for this. Um, (laughs) You know, God isn't sitting in heaven on his throne waiting to see what Lifeway puts out and labels Christian or not Christian to decide if he'll use it or not. You know, like, and, and I, there's, like, I love Christian music, but music can't be saved. You know what I'm saying? Music doesn't have a soul. So I love music that's about Jesus and about God. Um, and I'm thankful for Christian bookstores that sell great stuff. But God is not limited to revealing himself through things that we label as Christian. Uh, And so here's what I mean. Think about movies for a second. There's no verse that says, go ye unto regal cinemas, right? Like, there's no verse for that. And I don't think many of us would say like, I'm gonna invest in my soul this year by cultivating the spiritual discipline of going to the movies. Um, So it seems pretty, I don't know, secular, I guess. Uh, If you get curious about the things you love in your life, uh, you will find something amazing. So I just picked movies, because I like movies. If you pick whatever you want. So why do I like movies? Get curious about it. Why do I like this? Well, I like the visuals. I saw a movie a couple weeks ago where I, like, I just was so overwhelmed by the scope and the grand scale of the video, the visuals. How did you film this? This is gorgeous. Um, so I like the visuals. I like the soundtrack, right? I like the way the music makes me feel different things. Um, I like the stories that kind of draw me in and make me really care about these made-up characters. Uh, 
So then get curious about that. So in order to enjoy movies the way I do, I need eyes that can take in the visuals. I need ears that can process all of this sound. I need emotions that can draw me in. And I need a brain that's capable of processing and making sense of all of that. Well, where did that come from? Like, you realize God could have made us like blind, deaf creatures who communicate with touching. Or he could have made us uh, people without taste buds and said, you get bland oatmeal. That's how you will have oatmeal. He could have had us make children like with just a thought or something. But, but, but God makes us capable of a full range of feelings and senses. And he makes us capable of understanding them. And he puts us in the playground of a world filled with things that appeal to our taste and our smell and our touches. All of this comes from God. If you get curious about the things you love, you'll begin doing them to the glory of God. So you can enjoy this movie and at the end be like, I can't believe you gave me ears and I'm thankful they still work or whatever, you know? You can go on walks for the glory of God. You can make food to the glory of God. You can eat chocolate chip cookies to the glory of God. You can build a chair with reclaimed wood to the glory of God. You can paint a wall in the nursery to the glory of... You see how this explodes our world Everything becomes sacred. Everything becomes spiritual. Everything becomes an avenue by which we can experience the glory of God. What do you love? Follow the goodness in your life. And if you do, you'll find that God is everywhere. And this will change something deep inside of you. Um, you'll begin to strive to know God. Not just know about him, but, but to know him. Psalm 16 says, pleasures, O Lord, at your right hand forevermore. Do you know the God who has infinite pleasure? Do you experience God as infinitely pleasurable? Follow the goodness in your life and you'll, you'll begin to do that. And then strive to know God. Look at what Paul says to another church at one point. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which that whatever you do covers pretty much everything, right? He's like, if you're eating or drinking or really just whatever, do it all for the glory of God, which is, there's a component of this, which means do it with excellence, right? Do it in a way that speaks to the greatness of God. But this is also Paul saying, do this all to experience God, for the glory of God, to be real to you, to know God. All the goodness you experience comes from God, which means we shouldn't settle just on this gift, but to, to know the giver. Strive to know the one who's given this to you. And I want to try to flip a couple things on, on their heads right now. Most Christians, I know, feel guilty because they don't read the Bible enough or pray enough, right? And what we mean by that is like, I'm not doing enough of this. So what would happen if we started reading the Bible in order to know God? There's all kinds of great ways to read the Bible. You can read the Bible to get tips on finances. You can read the Bible uh, to get tools for parenting. You can read the Bible to get a sense of history or, I don't know, figure out how the world's gonna end or something like that. Like there's Worthy pursuits. Uh, but what if we gave just a sliver of our Bible reading to knowing God? What would we do then? What would that look like? I think the, the pressure to hit that Bible reading list might go down just a little bit. You know, what, what if we came to a passage that we're, we were really stirred by and, and maybe we would listen to that again? We would read it. Think if you had a 20-second tape recording of a loved one leaving you a voicemail. And after they had passed away, would you listen to that and then begin journaling about all the nuances of what they said? And all You would listen to it again and again and again. I just want to hear your voice. You, you would soak in that. 
We would slow down and we would read shorter passages and, and we would read thoughtfully. We would ask questions like, what are you showing me in this, God? What are you showing me about who you are and how you feel about me? I'm not saying this is the only way to read the Bible, but I am saying it's a way that we need to start doing more than I think most of us are doing. What about praying? Like imagine you meet somebody at church and they're like, I would love to get to know you. Let's go to Colkin tomorrow. And you meet them at Colkin and they talk to you for an hour and a half about everything wrong in their life. And they say, I'll see you in six weeks. And you're like, I didn't even, I didn't say a thing. You might not think that person is all that interested in you, right? Like any of you know somebody that all they do is talk to you and they don't know a thing about you? So here's the pro tip for relationships. You have to learn how to listen to other people. You have to genuinely be interested in them. If you wanna know God, it is no different. The way you relate is the way you relate. You, you relate to God in so many ways, just the same way you relate to other people. So if you wanna know God, listen to him. Which means, like, I'm thankful for the prayer lists, the prayer warriors in your journals of what date you prayed this and what date it came true. Like, keep doing all of that stuff. But at some point, start listening to God. You can say things like, God, it's Orphan Sunday, and I'm heartbroken. Would you comfort me? And then let him, give him space to comfort you. God, I want to hear from you. Well, then be quiet and let him speak to you. Is there room in the way you pray to hear from God? What would it look like for you to pray to know God and not just to get things from him? If you're willing to do this, to know God, to, to follow the goodness in your life, you'll experience him and you'll be transformed by him. The other thing Christians are so guilty about is I'm not telling people about Jesus enough, right? I'm not sharing the gospel with people. Well, I did not give one bit of encouragement or training on how to talk about chocolate chip cookies this morning. And yet I bet some of you are gonna call somebody or you're gonna call your mom and say, they made us chocolate chip cookies and they were so good. And it little jewel, Ruth Graves, it was a, you experienced something and all of a sudden you know how to talk about it. What happens when you experience something good in your life? You don't ever have to go to a class on how to tell people that your son was born. It's beautiful and it's overwhelming and it makes you feel alive and you just let everybody know. I can remember my buddy in college, this crazy guy named Tim, when he fell in love with Claire, who was way out of his league, and none of us could believe that she dated him. And they're married now with like seven kids or something. Um, he would run around campus saying, I'm in love and I don't care, who knows? Right? Like, here's the deal. When you taste something good, you will share it. And if you're guilty and insecure about sharing your faith, maybe you've outsourced your relationship with Jesus. If God is everywhere and we can experience him, one of the great privileges we have is helping others see God's presence in their lives because that's what will transform them. Think about as friends, if we stop trying to fix each other, if we saw a role less as solving one another's problems and more helping them see how God is at work in their life. I'm less trying to solve your issues and more trying to help you see that God is with you in the midst of this. There's some problems that, that I don't think can be solved in this life. They can only be endured. And the best friends help each other see the ways God is with them, that grace is still operating in their lives, that he's real. And if you've tasted him, you'll be able to share that with others and help them to see it too. We know these promises are true because of the cross of Christ, 
We, we know that God knows our pain. We know that God is with us. And we know that he's made a home in us. And have you ever thought about, of all the ways, what does it say about the heart and intentions of God? That of all the ways he could call us to come back to this reality, of all the ways he could invite us to experience his glory, that he does so in a way that involves our senses. He doesn't just say, memorize these truths. He doesn't just say, write this on your wall and think about it over and over and over again. See, at, at some point, theology has to give way to doxology. That is, the, the understanding of God has to give way to the worship of God, the experience of God. And that's why God comes to us and he says, here's how you will remember my love for you and what I've done for you. He takes something so ordinary, so mundane and everyday, a loaf of bread, and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, not when you dwell on it, not when you think about it, when you eat this, remember what I've done for you. He gives us something that we can smell and taste that nourishes the body and becomes part of who we are. After the meal, he takes a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. This is what frees you, enables you, powers you to live life to the glory of God alone. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. If you see no evidence of goodness in your life, please keep coming to church because every Sunday we remember that we have a God who loved us enough to die for us, who wanted to be in our fam his family so much that he would rescue us and bring us near. And he calls us to remember this in a way that we can smell, feel, see, taste, touch. Thanks be to God. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Uh, the wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. We'll have a gluten-free station to my left and some additional stations in the back. Uh, let's come forward, Christians, and experience the presence of God and remember his great love for us so, so that our, our knowledge of God might move us to knowing God, experiencing him, and worshiping him. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.